0: In my life, either I can be this another dude who hates what he does, makes good money, sits on the couch, plays video games, probably becomes fat, but drives the red BMW one day, and that's his path. Or I can go and do something that is risky, that I would love to do, and I'm gonna take a chance on it, and I can completely fail, but at least I know that I went and I did it.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Renaissance podcast. Today, I sat down with my good friend, AJ Agrawal, who went from being broke after a failed startup six years ago to recently selling a two-year-old e-commerce business for eight figures. Along with his investing philosophy, we discuss optimizing your health in your 30s and how much of his net worth he has in Bitcoin. Please enjoy this conversation with AJ. AJ, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Dude, uh, we haven't really caught up properly in a while, but it's great to see you here in San Diego. And uh, let's start off with this. Uh, can you tell the audience, uh, for, for the people that don't know, what you do?
0: Yeah, totally. And super excited to, to be here. The what you do question is weirdly like hard for me to answer only because I've done so many random things. And I feel like every few years the what i do changes and i feel like just in general it's easy for us to get put into this box of like what do you do so like you're an entrepreneur you're a marketer etc whereas i feel like for a lot of entrepreneurs there's no really set box to go in so like for me i think when i first started my career i owned a marketing agency so i was the marketing guy and then from there we dove into doing a lot of ICOs. So I became the marketer for ICO guy. And then after that, I started a CBD business. So I think for the last two years, I was the CBD guy. And now I'm doing a bunch of different projects. So I'm kind of the different project post-acquisition guy. And so what I do right now is look at new projects, kind of follow what's going on in the world. But I really don't have a set Kind of title of, of what I'm currently doing.
1: Okay, cool, cool. What were the things that happened that led to you uh, having your agency? Because I, I think that was your first really successful business, right? But it, but it wasn't your first business that you're involved in. What things happened in your life that led you to uh, to a successful agency?
0: The story starts with me going through college, and funny enough, my friends always get a good laugh about this. My mom, when I was Uh, going into college really wanted me to be an orthodontist. That was like her dream for me. And all my friends find that hilarious because I would be the last guy you'd want to be working on your teeth at all, which I knew super early on. So I think it was my sophomore year where I basically realized there was no way I was going to be a great orthodontist or, or doctor. It just became super apparent. And I knew that because I went to this Medical camp for students who wanted to go into dentistry. And I just knew I wasn't the smartest kid there. There are people who loved being in a doctor's office, they loved studying, and I was falling behind. And so after that, I said, Well, look, if I'm not going to do this, what am I going to go into? And I actually thought the next stage for me was going to be banking. So I did an internship at Wells Fargo, and I didn't really excel at that either. I felt like I had out of the box ideas that I was kind of pigeonholed in that. And there are people who are just better than me. So instead, I, when I graduated, I had gotten an offer to work full-time at Wells Fargo and I turned it down to do a startup. And the startup at the time was alumni fundraising for schools. And I did that business, raised about $1.5 million for it, but it completely failed. And the process of that failure was pretty hard on me. I think I was 24 at the time. And I just felt like I had let so many people down. And the startup ecosystem is such that when you graduate and you do a new idea, everybody is so positive. And we got a bunch of press for that company. And you almost feel invincible. And then to go back a few years later to having a persona where people saw you as super successful, To then going to a new persona where you're now failing and you have to tell the people who backed you that you'd lost their money was really a super hard experience for me. So as that company failed, I just so happened to meet my fiance as that was happening. We met in the Bay Area and I had no money. So I was like, look, I need to either figure out a way where I can make money so I can save this relationship or I'm going to move back to where I'm from, which is Ohio. So when I was looking through, I was like, what is the best way for me to make a media income? And it just so happened that through the process of building that startup, I had made some marketing connections. And of the few things I did right with that company, I had made really strong connections in terms of marketing in different companies, etc. So what I noticed in that was occurring was if you're a consultant for a Fortune 500 brand or a company, you get paid typically in terms of relation to salary. You're a consultant, paid a salary, easy. But what I noticed is that if you have an agency, the prices that you charge are about five to six X what a consultant makes. So really the very basic premise of the agency that I started, Verma Media, was it was a one-man show. I was essentially a consultant, but it had the lens of an agency. And I charged five to six more than what a consultant would do. And I was lucky enough to work with companies like IBM, Expedia, uh, Jewel, Shopify, and then that agency just ended up taking off. And so I worked on that until I was 28. Yeah.
1: Can you talk about how you got the first couple clients with the agency?
0: Yeah, totally. So the initial clients all came from referral-based introductions, which was really helpful. And then from there, I think we did really, really well. Is We were super big on doing an amazing job for the clients that we had. And then the, from there, it just kind of grew organically. And I think the difference that I noticed was most people have really bad experiences with agencies. I think the advantage that was out of necessity for me is I was really a one-man show. And so a lot of the companies that we were working with, they got to work directly with, with me. The other side of that is I actually could prove that I was moving the needle for these organizations. So a lot of what we were doing was on the SEO side. And I could show that, hey, look, since you hired me, you had done better, like your marketing performance improved. And then from there, it just snowballed into more and more clients, which, you know, you build, I I kind of built upon it. So I think the biggest thing is tapping my initial network, which was really huge. And then just doing above beyond job for those initial clients. And once you do that really well, it's pretty easy to get clients. I think there's a lot of really bad agencies. So performing well, kind of puts you above the rest.
1: So despite the startup failing, the network that you built through that allowed you to succeed quickly with the agency. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. And I think it also gave me a different frame of mind where initially I had assumed that having a company and being successful is building a business that you could raise a lot of money for. And going through the process of having investors and seeing what happens when you fail and being accountable to your investors gave me a different side of business where it's the unsexy version of actually having a cash flow positive business where you don't need investors, which is kind of ridiculous to say because of the core principle of business is to make money. But unless I had that traumatic experience, I would have never built the agency like we did. Like our agency was eighty five percent margin wise out of everything. It was a highly run profitable business and never took outside capital. And I think part of that, though, is that, one, it was out of necessity because I was using that money for myself that I was living living on it. It had no outside capital. But two, going through the process of actually raising money and seeing how that works, there's nothing wrong with just having a nice, profitable business. And in fact, the chances of you getting acquired in the short term are way better if the business fundamentals are solid. And I just feel like coming out of college, I really didn't realize that.
1: How long did you have the uh, the startup how long were you involved in the startup? So I started
0: that company. It was called Alumnify when I was 20 years old, and we shut it down when I was 25. And the reason I remember that is on my 25th birthday, I opened up my Wells Fargo account, and I had 200 to to my name. And I just remember thinking that was one of the first times in my life where I was starting to feel like I had failed in a way that I was looking at myself compared to my peers. And I was thinking to myself, like I really regret that decision that I that I made. So I shut it that down when I was 25. And then over the next year, I went right into Vermin Media, which is the marketing agency. And that agency within its first year did, did a million in, in revenue. The second year did a million in profit.
1: Wow. Dude, uh, you're 25. That's only six years ago. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Was your worst time in business or maybe even your life uh, when you had to shut down the startup? Was that the was that the greatest struggle that you've encountered in business? I think so. I think that was really hard.
0: Probably the hardest because at that point I was starting to realize that I wasn't, you know, 21, 22 where it's it's cool to be sleeping on a couch and, you know, with sharing a two bedroom apartment with 10 guys at the beginning, that's cool. And that's what I did. That's how I lived in Mountain View. uh, When I lived there, that's what I did in San Francisco. When I got to 25, I kind of realized, Hey, look, bro, like this isn't that cool anymore. People are making money. They're taking vacations. They're going out with their friends and you have a few hundred dollars to your name. You know, I I remember taking out my now fiance out to dinner and being worried that my card was going to get declined. And I started to think about that more and more as I got older. So when that failure happened, it was more than just me feeling sorry for myself and my investors, but it honestly was like a loss of identity to an extent.
1: So the startup was still a really important part of your whole business career and your journey, right? Like what you built there and the connections you made there helped you succeed with the agency. But even with the startup, like that was just a couple of years you were working there, yeah. And like uh, for people that maybe have uh, a job like uh, comparable to your time at Wells Fargo, or people that are thinking about starting a company or agency, do you have some advice for them? Because you know, as you know, I also uh, used to have an agency, and and that's a that's a real struggle with the you know with getting the first clients with with building up the the monthly revenue, but. Uh, of course, in the end, you and I were both grateful for, for that and it opened a lot, of, a lot of doors for us. Do you have some advice for people that are thinking about starting a similar business or uh, have just started an, an agency like that?
0: Yeah, I would say it's a simple concept. But one piece of advice that I would give is that there is no way to generate long term substantial wealth if you're trading your time for money. Nazim Taleb has a really good quote where he says, the greatest addictions to man are heroin and a monthly paycheck. And I think that's powerful because with the agency that I had, what I realized is that even though I was making good money, I was never going to become wealthy because I was involved in every single client account. And so for people who are working a job or having their own agencies, the key is to separate it out where you're earning money when you sleep. There is no way, even if you look at people in any form of career. Let's take, for instance, a lawyer. The richest lawyers, the ones that make real money, it's never from them you know, working more and more hours. They own their own practices. It's the same thing for doctors. And so the key is basically to get to that point as fast as possible. The lie that people face in corporate America, I believe, is that by serving these years and years and years, you're gonna build some long-term wealth. The issue with that is as you're getting these promotions, your lifestyle is also going up. So you're faced with this decision where you need to create long-term wealth in a way where your expenses don't keep up. It's actually a very simple point. And so my advice would be is just get to that point as fast as possible. How do you get to that point? You have to own a part of a business, whether that's in stocks, whether that's in Bitcoin, whether that's in real estate. And you want to do that as fast as possible, and you want to hold those assets for as long as possible. And so if you look at somebody's life, let's say for 100 years, the more that you can get to where you're earning money when you sleep, the faster that you can get that through your head and develop an income stream like that over time, just naturally, the wealthier you're going to
1: get. When you first started the agency, your income was still tied to your time. Right. You were the main point of contact for clients. When did you know that you had to step away from that and put other people in your place? And and how did you manage to do that?
0: I think where I realized it is when I had started working with Jewel, the vaporizer company. And at the time, they were an earlier stage startup. And what I noticed was that I was working extremely hard on their account, I was like spending seven, eight hours and putting everything I had to move the needle. And in return, they paid me a great agency price. You know, it was at the time the highest paying client that I had. But what was funny is I sat back as I got their monthly payment and I thought, this is a fraction of what the founders have made. And further than that, the amount of money that I made them, what I actually made for myself was a fraction of it. And I think that was an eye-opening experience to say that the real way that I would need to build wealth was having a team a business like I was saying before and getting away from that so I had I had multiple options to do that one was to invest my money properly and then two was eventually go in to building my own products and running my own experiments which is the natural progression that I made after the agency
1: at what net worth did you did you start to invest uh, was it quite early or cuz obviously a lot of your net worth is in the businesses also, the, the equity there. But uh, around what level do you start thinking, okay, I need to have some investments outside of my companies?
0: Yeah. When I went over 100 I started thinking about it. And initially, my plan was to follow a very basic investment thesis, which is what I still do today, although that thesis has changed. So the, the first time I made over six figures, I did things like I started to put money towards my IRA, and the rest of my money, I put it into the S&P. So like, my general advice, which is, is pretty boring, but I think it still holds true. The first thing I think is to eliminate the urgent debts that you have. So if you have tuition debts, et cetera, paying those off, having a few months of runway. Once I had those two things, it was the first time I was able ever able to think about where to put my money. Now my thesis has changed. I don't put money towards my IRA. I don't really put money in the S&P. But at the time, I was like, okay, let me do these things. Because that's kind of the traditional wisdom that that you get, especially if you're not actively investing. At that point in my life, I was probably spending about 5% of my time looking at investments. So for the general person who doesn't really know where to put their money, S&P is a fine bet. If you want to save on taxes, put in the IRA. That was the thesis that I had up to when I became a millionaire. When I became a millionaire, the investment opportunities that I got, my philosophy, those things started to change. But up until 27, that was the basic investment thesis.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you still recommend to people to buy S&P or has your view on that uh, changed a bit? I think if you are willing to spend a few hours a
0: month on researching and looking at companies that are doing well, then there's no need to invest in the S&P. I think the S&P... Is for somebody who doesn't want to spend any time on their investments and they want to put their money into something that's consistent. There's nothing wrong with the S&P. The S&P does what? Maybe 10, a little bit lower percent on average every year. It's, it's fine. You know what you're going to get. Where I would push people is like, there's an extra step. So for me, my stock portfolio now is I like to invest in monopolies. Those are the games I want to play. So for instance, I don't think Google is going anywhere. So I'll bet on Google. I don't think Apple's going anywhere. I'll bet on Apple. I think Facebook's a monopoly. I'll bet on Facebook. I think Amazon's a monopoly. I'll bet on Amazon. Where I struggle with is the argument that an S&P index is better than betting on monopolies. So what I would tell people is the monopolies that exist today are so obvious that you're better putting money into those if you're going to put it in the market than putting the S&P. If you want to be even less risk-averse, you can go onto the S&P and see which companies are actually doing well. This is all public information. So if you dwindle down the S&P 500 to companies that are actually performing well, who have healthy financials, what are you down to? 100? So by saving, taking out those 400 companies, your rate of return is going to be way higher than the 10%. You need to do that once or twice, maybe a year. So I would say unless you're so busy that you can't spend two hours to look up this research... There's no need to be doing the S&P. You should be investing in tech monopolies or at a minimum, scrape out the companies whose
1: balance sheets aren't healthy. We may have talked about this before, but I, I don't like the, you know, I don't like the idea of investing in the S&P, you know, and the reason is I don't think there's anyone in the world that buys the S&P and says, I have equal conviction in every single one of these companies. I think their their chances of success are all equal, Right. And so if nobody I mean but, but that's what you're expressing by buying the S&P is you're, you're you're betting that all of these will have the same chance of performing as well. So if I were to, you know, have an allocation in stocks, I would do exactly what you did. The tech monopolies that are virtually impossible to unseat, I would put money there and uh, and I think people uh, should avoid being intellectually lazy and and not just buy a basket of 500 companies. And, uh, well, put in a little bit of work and hopefully uh, look at Bitcoin too, as you and I both have. Okay, man, you have the agency still and it's doing great. And yet you still started a few more businesses. What was the motivation to add more uh, companies to your portfolio? What, what was intriguing about going into other industries and what did you decide on?
0: I think for me, owning an agency is rewarding in the sense that There's something great about when you do work for a client and they like it. And I like the B2B aspect of that. I think my natural personality is B2B sales. I would wake up and I can do cold calls and I actually love it. I look forward to B2B meetings. And so I think that's what's always drawn me to the agency. And it's a great cash flow business. What I also had a desire for always was to eventually do my own product. And I remember I, I was on this sales call one time and I was telling the potential client about all the results that we were getting. And this guy on the phone to me just says, AJ, if you're so good at marketing brands, why haven't you ever done your own product? And I had no response. I had no response. And I was like, wow, like that's a really strong point. And I thought after that call for a few days, I said, what would be more powerful if I said, hey, I had a hundred clients and this is what they've done. Here's satisfaction. Or if I came and I said, hey, Kentaro, you're doing CBD business? Well, great. Not only do I have an agency where we've worked with 100 plus clients, they've had results. I built my own company and it's doing more revenue than yours in a faster time. Here's the playbook of how we did it. And so from there, I started to think like, wow, it would be really cool to do my own product. That's something I wanted to do. At the time, I think I started to go in this weird sense where the following weeks, I became more and more detached from the agency and personally that for me just wasn't healthy like i remember i have always actually had this addiction to video games ever since i was young my brother would find me like in 6th grade i'd be playing this game called nca football and i would start playing at 5 p.m he would wake up to go to school the next morning at 7 a.m. and I'd still be on the couch. I was doing the
1: same stuff, (laughs) (laughs) Counter-Strike.
0: And I'm telling you the way that these people have designed these video games, same thing with Instagram and Facebook, it's just so addicting. And so when I became detached from the agency at the time, I fell in this spiral where I was just playing video games six to seven hours a day. And what I've always thought about video games when I reflect on it is I was working harder on beating that video game than I was at my agency. And so what that showed to me, and this is really for anybody who plays a lot of video games, that should be a very clear indicator to you that you don't love what you do. Because if you are willing to work that hard on a video game, harder than your actual job, then it must ask you why you're more engaged with that. It's because you hate your job. And so that was eye opening to me. And one of my best friends, Deep, actually told me, like, hey, look, dude, like you, what you're doing right now, you're, like, you're better than this. You can do more. You're not happy doing what you're doing. So that in the combination of what the client told me said, okay, I want to do a product. And so for me, the next question became, what product do I actually want to do? I uh, ran cross country in college. Health has always been a big part of my life. Since I left college, you know, when you're running uh, cross country and track at a division one school, your life is super, super structured. You work out, your sleep, your nutrition, all of its tracked. Since leaving college, all of that kind of comes into flux. And so, one of the things that I was struggling with at the time, partly because of my addiction to video games, is I wasn't getting good sleep. I wasn't recovering better. And while weed can help that, you can't really smoke weed every single day and then be a functioning human being. At least I can't. It's really hard to do. And so, when I was looking through solutions for that, I found CBD. And CBD, I think, from a personal level, matched with my lifestyle it helped me, but also CBD was in an industry that was high margin, which I think a lot of e commerce entrepreneurs ignore. It was a 90% product margin. It was in a space that had growing search rankings. It was an industry that was really early where I felt like it wasn't being dominated by higher level companies. And it also at the time had strong multiples and there was a lot of press about it. And so for all those reasons, I said, look, I have two options in my life. Either I can be this another dude who hates what he does, makes good money, sits on the couch, plays video games, probably becomes fat, but drives the red BMW one day, and that's his path. Or I can go and do something that is risky, that I would love to do, and I'm going to take a chance on it, and I could completely fail, but at least I know that I went and I did it, and I can fix my life and really do something that even if I fail, I'm going to be proud I, I would do it. And so I took out, at the time, maybe like a fourth of my net worth and put it in and said, like, let's do this thing. That's a big bet. Yeah, it is, it is a big bet. But I think at the time, it was also the way I, the way I thought about it is, yeah, it's a risk. But it's also a risk to go along this path, look back when I'm 35, 40, and think to myself, man, like, I never did this. And living with that
1: regret and assuming that I'm gonna be okay with that, that in itself is a risk. I'm gonna ask you a question of the answer to already, but how long did you have that CBD business and uh and where is it now?
0: Yeah, I, I had the business for two years and two months ago it it sold for eight
1: figures. Congratulations, buddy.
0: Yeah, thanks. It was a crazy process. It's it's funny, like the way I imagined an acquisition and the way that it actually happened was really different. My assumption was that somebody comes to you, writes a big check, is your best friend. And, you know, it's a process of a week and it's all done. That was super naive. In fact, it took months. There's a lot of times I was stressed. And then afterwards, I think I was happy and excited, but it's kind of like the first time I moved into my first nice apartment. You walk in and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. I'm awesome. And then after a month, you're like, it's an apartment and selling your business is kind of the same thing. At the time, you're like, wow, it's amazing. And then, like, a few weeks later, you're like,
1: all right, like, what's what's the next thing? What did you do right after you got an eight figure wire in your bank account? I was actually in Costa Rica.
0: <laughs> I was in Costa Rica and uh, it was right before actually the flight. And I actually remember showing my mom. And uh, for her, that was really emotional because, you know, my mom raised my brother and I by herself and we didn't really come from much. And so I showed her and it was just like a, yeah, it was emotion. It was an emotional thing for her because I think, you know, she did like everything for my brother and I, so for her to see that and just to be able to tell like my mom to be like, look, like you did so much for me. There's no worries anymore. Like, you're good. Like this is like, if I had to pick one thing that was the most meaningful for me, it was being able to have that combo with her. So it was awesome. But like being able to show her that and be like, look, like, you know you struggled and now you're not going to have to struggle anymore like i think that was probably the most meaningful thing.
1: Wow man that's really amazing. That was definitely one of the best things uh, that i heard this past year was your success selling that business. What was more fun was it was it exiting successfully and and the satisfaction from that or actually building up the business which did, which process did you enjoy more?
0: I think i enjoyed the first day that i got $1,000 in sales for that business, more than the acquisition. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but when you get through the acquisition process, it's not like you are have this huge, massive rush of adrenaline that most people think. It's more of a sigh of relief because you have to think, you go through this process, let's say for six, seven months, you can't tell anybody. You don't really want to tell anybody because your assumption is that it's going to fall through. So you can only keep it to yourself. And then every step along the way, you're thinking that this deal is going to fall apart and you have to run your business. What a lot of people forget is as you're going through due diligence for months, sales need to go up to the right or the deal doesn't get done. And so as it gets towards the end, people like for me, my loved ones knew, like my fiance knew something was stressing me out. So I told her, my mom started to know, some of my really close friends just knew something was up. So then you tell them, but still, the deal is a week or two weeks away. So then you start thinking in your mind, all these thoughts start rushing in. What if the deal doesn't happen? How are you going to tell? What are you going to do afterwards? Are you going to be able to run the business? Are you motivated? And so finally, when it gets done, it's just this like oh, sigh of relief. But there's, on a, on a different level, when you start getting sales, like the first time I got $1,000 of sales, I had the Shopify app on my phone. So it was going to ching to ching to ching And I would refuse to turn it off. Even in like a movie theater, I'd let it go. And it was just rush of adrenaline every single time. So in a weird way, yeah, I think I was more excited when I started to get initial traction. And then at the very end of it, after the acquisition, it was just like this deep breath, of like, ah,
1: it's good. You've started some other projects also. Do you hope to have a similar conclusion, uh, like an exit with those projects too? Are, are you building companies to eventually exit or or are are the other projects more for cash flow?
0: Yeah. So those businesses are being run for cash flow. Although I think with e-commerce especially, there's two ways to run the business. One is cash flow, which is the way I've always run these businesses. So for the CBD business, Verma Farms, we never raised outside capital. I was the only shareholder. Of that business, it was profitable from day one. The the company's EBITDA was over fifty percent in relation to to revenue. And the other businesses that I've started since Deep and I have started a company called Blue Atlas. That business is run in a similar way. There's another business I have, Elman Ride, that's run very similar. Those businesses are run, quote unquote, for cash flow, but really, I think. The cash flow based businesses are also the more interesting ones that actually get exits. Like, I think our CBD business got an exit because our margins were high. We didn't have a bunch of outside capital. So, we we're able to make a decision very quickly. And the business was profitable. We're over 50% profit. I think the companies in the space that struggled were the ones that. And even still to this day, if you're a CBD business and you're not profitable, it doesn't matter if you're doing $6 million, $7 million, $8 million of revenue, there's not a market for you. You have two options. Either you run a profitable, sound business or you get to $10, 11000000 million of revenue. And then from there, there's opportunities that you can get based off of revenue. I feel like that's starting to even dwindle away in the CBD space. So to answer your question, For all these businesses, it's the same core principles, which is the core principles I advise any person who's going to e-commerce. Pick a product that's extremely high margin, have that project, uh, find a marketing channel where you're getting a solid ROI, aim to get that business, even though it's very hard to do, over 50% profit, and then just grow and scale. It doesn't matter if it's slow. Just have a a sound business and you'll have an exit. If you're going to shoot for the stars, it's a different story. Then you can raise outside capital then you can go through and run run a bunch of ads and get people, even if you're breaking even or just to subscribe, that's totally fine. Just understand that that exit for you is not happening until you reach a massive critical mass. And if you need to keep raising rounds along the way, you should really calculate the amount of equity that you're losing. So for Verma Farms, we had an eight-figure exit, but I was the only shareholder. There's no outside capital. For somebody who raised, let's say, three or four rounds, they would need to sell, let's say, for $50 million to have the same result. So I, I say that, and it really traces back to the story I was telling you before with the agency after Alumnify, how those businesses were completely different. There is nothing wrong. And honestly, I think that's where 90% of entrepreneurs should focus on being super, super obsessed about EBITDA. Because until you reach a critical mass, that's the number that's going to get you the exit. It's not your top line revenue.
1: Let's talk about your investing philosophy and your investing thesis. How are you invested now? You know What are you invested in? Uh, what is interesting to you? And, and how do you structure putting your wealth and capital to work? It's a question that
0: I've had to think of more now, post the, the exit of, of my business. What I started to realize was how much of a lie we're told about inflation. So. And the reason I start there is if you know what inflation is, you know the number that you essentially need to beat so you don't lose money, which I think is a good benchmark for anybody who's starting to invest. I think a a core concept that a lot of people ignore is if you have cash, you are losing money every day. And I take a pause there just because I think for a lot of people, they have this sense of relief by holding cash in the bank. Like, oh my gosh, at least I have this. What they don't realize is that you're ignoring one inflation, and that the inflation rate that you're going off of is most likely a lie. Inflation by a CPI index makes no absolute sense. the The way that that's built is for somebody who orders Doritos, you know, like watches Netflix, and the price of Netflix and their Doritos go up three to four percent every year. That's how inflation is calculated through our government. That's not what inflation is. Inflation has to take in mind the price of assets. If you go and wanted to buy a house in Nantucket this year versus last year, that price of the same house in Nantucket has gone up over 20%. That is inflation. So that's a core principle where I said, okay, look, I need to find an investment that I'm getting over 20% year over year. And by the way, 20% is actually pretty generous. It's more like 25, but I'll say 20%. So I start there. Okay, so now where can I get Uh, ROI on my investments over 20% if that's the benchmark. That's just so I don't lose money. Well, one is stocks. Okay. So if I'm looking at stocks, I said, well, I could do what I traditionally did before. So I look at these monopolies, Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. But with those companies, I say, okay, what rate of return am I getting? So off the top of my head, I think Amazon maybe got a 6% return. Google, Apple, Facebook, maybe in the 20% return. So so we're keeping up with inflation with those stocks. I don't want to keep up with inflation. If the goal is for me to retire and never work a day in my life, I need to not just hit inflation. I need to make money. So now those stocks go away. So now what am I left with? Okay. So if I'm not going to do the S&P, if I'm not going to do stocks, I could do maybe real estate. So let's look at real estate. Well, What's the best form of real estate for me? Okay, so I want real estate where I can have something that is low maintenance. I don't want to actively work on this. I want it to be a passive investment. I want it to be fungible. I want it to be able to move very quickly. This is against the traditional forms of real estate that you see. I can't move a piece of real estate from California to Nevada, for instance. If those taxes take place and they increase, I have no say. That's where the real estate is. So then I think to myself, okay, if I can't move the real estate, that this is an issue. And then I asked myself, how long do I want to hold this real estate? Well, in an ideal world, I would just live off of some of the interest that was made and I would pass this down to my kids. So what real estate is the easiest, let's say, to give to my kids 100 years from now? Well, if I have a place, let's say, in California or a building in New York, et cetera, are those going to be around in 100 years? I don't know, dude. Like, look at, there's a lot of factors that go up with that, building upkeep, et cetera. So this drew me down a path of, what was going to solve this issue? And the only solution that I could find was, was Bitcoin. Bitcoin historically beat the returns of almost any other investment that I could find. I think the byproduct of that that I will say is, sure, there are other things in cryptocurrency or maybe other stocks that, that beat out Bitcoin short term, but I won't invest in something I don't understand. Bitcoin is pretty easy for me to understand, at least at a, at a high level. So I understand Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I've never thought of as comparative to a stock. I more have thought of it in relation to an asset. So I compare it to, to real estate. I compare it to gold. So the advantage is there. It's easily transferable if I need to, God forbid, you know, move, pick up and move. I can transfer it out. It's easy to sell. I can sell my Bitcoin to somebody across the world, no problem. So for those aspects, it's better. And also, I want investments that I'm going to hold for ten years. I don't like. I'm not a short-term day trader. Never wanted to do it. Don't want to think about it. So my Bitcoin holdings, I, I plan to hold for ten years. This is a long-winded answer to tell you that I have about eighty percent of my net worth into into Bitcoin. The other percentages are a split between monopolies, which uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, as we discussed, and then my own businesses, and flyers. I have some in Ethereum. I bought some Shiba. And I think of any cryptocurrency outside of Bitcoin. I basically think to myself, I've lost this money. And if I get a return on it, amazing. But I expect to lose it and it cause any harm. And then, so the thesis is pretty boring. It's a small percentage of tech monopolies, and it's Bitcoin, and everything I plan on holding, I plan to hold for, for 10 plus years. And I try to dwindle my cash down to where I literally have maybe one month of cash.
1: That's it. Cool. What was your investment thesis on Shiba?
0: You know, I, I, Kentaro, I like dogs. I don't know why you're laughing. I, was there a joke? So whisper something. Do you not like Shiba Inu's?
1: They're they're cute dogs. Yeah,
0: I'm saving up for golden doodle coin because I got a golden doodle. You should
1: start it, man.
0: I've thought about it, yeah. I feel like as we get more dogs, we can increase the amount of investments and then potentially there should be a crypto fund that just uh, invests in different dog coins. Look at Dogecoin. Isn't that a dog mascot for Dogecoin? Absolutely. And do you know the rate of... Uh, the ROI that you'd have gotten if you invested in Dogecoin three years ago?
1: I think you can't call it an investment with such a short, short timeline.
0: I would call it really fucking rich. You know what I mean? So so the question is not why,
1: why I invested in Shiba. It's why you didn't. Do you think Shiba Inu is sound money?
0: I don't think Shiba Inu is sound money, but I think it makes great cocktail talk. And also, if you want to shit talk your friends... The best shit talking is if you have somebody like yourself that, you know, is bullish on Bitcoin and then you think to yourself three years from now, AJ walks up to me and goes, oh, that's cute. You bought Bitcoin. Well, I made billions off of Shiba Inu. God, what a convo, huh?
1: You're doing it for the story in the life.
0: Oh, for sure. Okay. it be very clear. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bullshitting to an extent. I think Shiba Inu and all these other coins, there's a 90 plus plus chance of failure for them. I take them the same mind as if you're a VC and you're investing in one of 10. This is money that I'm like, look, I want to have fun with and throw it at something. That's my investments in anything outside of, of
1: Bitcoin. Very good, man. Okay, so this past year was amazing for you. You had your big exit. You and I have traveled a bit, did some cool stuff. Um, what are you most excited about for this year, 2022? The thing I'm most excited about is
0: on a personal level, really becoming more in tune with myself, my values, my ethics, and doing things that I feel like have always been really important to me, but I've always put on the back burner. So I've never really dedicated the time to understand, for instance, where our food comes from. And this has led me down an interesting path, watching documentaries and reading articles of how poorly we treat animals in the United States—it's—it's it's pretty disgusting. And so, one of the things that I've tried to be conscious of is, hey, like, what can I do to improve one my health and to my philosophy around simple things like food, meditation, etc. So, in relation to food, I've, I've tried to move to more completely off of mass farm produced meats, so pasture raised meat, and I don't know whether it's placebo or not, I feel much better. I actually feel more masculine and in a weird way, more primal. (laughs) And and so the, the other thing I'm excited about this year off of that is I want to go hunting. I think even though a lot of people have their different opinions about it, I think there's something to be said about understanding what the process an animal goes through when we kill it. Like I think killing an animal, skinning it and cooking it, brings us closer to the food that we're eating. And I just feel like in society now, we're so far apart from that. I was watching this documentary the other day, weirdly enough, shows you how big a dork I am of of chicken nuggets and why chicken nuggets took off. And the reason that chicken nuggets took off, one of the reasons is that people didn't even equate it to meat. You're looking at this thing that's this fried assortment of chicken parts, breaded, people don't want to think of it as, as meat. But in a weird way, a chicken nugget is a sickly, deformed thing That it was a chicken, but if you hold a chicken in front of somebody, they immediately don't want to eat the chicken. There's like there's no
1: sympathy for a chicken nugget. Exactly,
0: exactly, and nobody has sympathy for anything. I feel like in relation to to how we eat, and I also just feel like there's so many general ideas that we take. Red meat is bad for you. Fats are bad. Carbs are good. All these things that I think this year I've just I'm looking forward to spending time questioning and figuring out what's the ideal. Kind of thing for me personally, and, and for my health.
1: What are your current habits or your current diet that you have now? And what are some of the things that you want to explore more of, besides what you already talked about? Yeah.
0: So right now, a typical day for me is I wake up early around five thirty. Don't set an alarm clock. I'm in bed around nine. I'm pretty obsessive about quality of sleep, so. I have those blinds that block out all the light. I have this thing called a chilly sleep, which sets my mattress temperature to the ideal temperature. I have an alarm clock that has certain light display. And then as you wake up, adjust the light display. And I have a humidifier. So yeah, my fiance probably rolls her eyes every time of how much random shit I have in our house for sleep, but it's super important. And I take CBD and supplements every night to sleep. So I'll do that. And then when I wake up at 530, I'm ready to, to get up in the morning and, and go out for the day. So I'll go to the the gym and then I'll do the sauna every day, seven days a week, 20 minutes. And I set that thing up to 190 every day. And then I'll do the Peloton. And then after that, I'll do a combination of an intense strength workout or another thing of cardio. And then I'll go to work. So that, that's my current schedule. The things I want to do, you asked of like this year, I keep hearing about this NAD stuff, which you did, right? And so, from your experience, I want to try it, but, but you had a really good experience at that.
1: I did. I've had uh, a tendon in my forearm that got inflamed. I mean, I injured it doing uh, hammer curls, most likely. And with the ultrasound, it was twice as big as it was supposed to be. I went to a couple doctors, they gave me some stuff, it didn't really fix it. And I was dealing with this for six months, and the pain was getting progressively worse. And for several months, it was so bad that if I held my phone with my left arm, my, my arm would start to hurt, just the weight of the phone. Randomly, a, a friend of mine recommended me to do NAD+. It's an IV therapy. They, they drip the solution of NAD plus into you. It takes about three to four hours to do 500 milliliters. And I wasn't even trying to do this to fix the arm, but he just said, I feel amazing. I love it. You got to try it. So I go to the clinic. This is in Dubai. And it's super expensive. It's usually like 550 bucks to 650 bucks per session, and normally you do five sessions every like in a row, every day, once a day. So the doctor says, "Okay, we'll sign up for five sessions." I said, "Well, listen, let's do three first. So, so I did three, and actually at that time I was also doing a a fast, a multi day fast. Uh, so I didn't really feel different or better. I mean, I already felt a bit weird because I was doing the fast. But I noticed that half the pain in my arm went away after the third session of the, uh, the IV therapy. And I said, okay, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's expensive, but if I can fix my arm, it's absolutely worth it, right? It's not just for fun anymore. So I went back, did two more sessions. I would say 80 to 90% of the pain went away. And then in LA this past week, I did another session of the therapy. And uh, there's like a little, there was a little bit of pain left before LA, I did it there and I haven't really done weight training since that. But, you know, when I put some resistance on my arm, I don't feel any pain anymore. So you can check out the book Lifespan. The guy talks about it. He gets a little bit political in the second half of the book. So, you know, I think the first half is the more interesting part, but he talks about that. And NAD is what your body, to the, you know, as I understand, basically your body produces it when you put your body into stress, like, but specific specific kind of stress, like you do cryotherapy or ice bath, or you do a multi day fast, your body goes into a different mode where your body is not trying to reproduce anymore; it's trying to fix the things that's wrong within itself, uh, and it produces NAD. And apparently, for me, this is the boost my body needed in order to to fix itself, and and I'm I'm really happy and shocked that it worked like that. So give it a try. Maybe it will fix something that you didn't even know was a problem, or maybe you'll feel amazing. But a lot of people say it makes them think clearer and sleep better. And I'm, I'm very, very happy I found that.
0: That's incredible. I, I'm i interested to ask you. So when I was talking before about eating pasture-raised meat, one of the things I naturally increased through that is increasing the amount of liver, kidney, and heart that I was eating and for me, my energy went up. I felt like my strength immediately went up. I know that you moved a few years ago to a keto-based or mostly meat-based diet.
1: Did you notice similar things when you switched to that or was your experience? I was doing intermittent fasting up until the, uh, the COVID lockdowns. And then, but with the intermittent fasting, I was eating within a four-hour window every day. So I would drink uh, coffee, mostly decaf and water all day until about 6 p.m. And then 6 to 10 p.m. was my eating window. And uh, I lost the last bit of fat that I wanted to get off my body through that. And uh, uh, I found that just drinking these liquids would trick my body for an hour or two into thinking I I ate. So it was actually really easy. After the first day or two, it was super easy. I I was very shocked at how simple it was. Uh, with the COVID lockdowns and, uh, the government responses to COVID, I, I just could not hold myself from going to the fridge every 30 minutes. It's just like, I'm, I'm bored and I need to consume something. So I said, okay, that's not going to work anymore with intermittent fasting. I was able to eat some carbs, some sugar, uh, and I never gained weight. So that was nice about that. But after the the lockdown stuff, I, I switched to keto and then, yeah, so I stopped drinking cocktails and stuff. And I started drinking prosecco because you can maintain ketosis with the, you know, a few glasses of prosecco. And now I am mostly carnivore, so my normal diet is I skip breakfast, and for lunch I'll have a uh, 500 gram or 16 ounce ribeye, and then for dinner I'll usually do the same and I actually want to introduce you know, beef heart, beef liver into my diet. I've taken some supplements for that. Honestly, I can't tell if there's any difference, but uh, I, I've heard so, from so many people like you that it gives you a lot of energy, and I want to try that. I, I just need to figure out, because liver the, doesn't taste that good, right? I, I, is, is pasture raised significantly better in terms of taste or anything? Have you done anything to make this more, like integrate it more easily into your diet?
0: Yeah. So the way I get it is I get grounded up bison from this place called Force of Nature what i like about them is they're completely pasture raised and the quality of their meat is is bar none they actually mix the bison kidney liver and heart with the regular bison meat so that does help my advice is season that thing a lot but i think it's it's harder to take down but the health benefits are unbelievable and i think for me I feel just super primal. And I also do a fast. There's actually a lot of studies that show that restricting our calories doesn't work. This is what everybody thinks is the answer to diet. They did a study where they took one group of people that was on a calorie-restrictive diet, so they breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they watched calories. And then they took another group that did a fasting diet. So it was take the same amount of calories, but on a fast, and the fasting group won in fact, not only did they win, the other group started chewing on their nails. They started freaking out, lower energy. The fasting group did not. It's pretty fascinating. Uh,
1: they, The fasting group won in terms of what? In terms of
0: being able to keep the weight off, in terms of energy. And over the the program, more people, I think from the calorie deficient group just dropped from the study completely. The fasting group did not. Fasting for me, I think it, it kind of, All follows the same trend of when we started mass producing food, is when we have seen a lot of the problems that we've seen with obesity and health problems. So, naturally, when you think of that, you say, How do you solve this? Well, you go back to what it was before. Our ancestors didn't eat every few hours. We ate when we could get food. We ate a lot. We ate a diet that was heavy on meat, that was wild meat, that was how nature created it. And then we would rest. And then you'd go out and do the same thing. The problem is is now you have to follow the money. Like I think about this with when I think of like protein shakes and things like that. the supplement industry is, is massive, and sugary, bad protein has become one of a, the top selling project, uh, products in the supplement space. Why do you need a sugary drink of milk and a little bit of protein and tons of sugar after you work out? Who's benefiting from that? It's the industry that makes us believe that. Why do you need breakfast? Like, why do you need cereal, et cetera? There's somebody who's profiting off that. You don't need any of those things. It's not needed. And in fact, the biggest lie that our government and health pushed on us was that fat is the issue. A low-fat diet was what we needed. The people who ran those studies, they were funded by Coca-Cola. This is this is public information that's done. The real route I have felt, and the only thing that's worked for me in my own personal experience is going back before all this bullshit that the government and different health organizations organizations put pushed on us. natural, healthy food at restricted times.
1: And I think even in lifespan, that's a big part of part of the book. Right. There's so much uh, poison all around us, all the processed food, I mean cereal, like I used to eat that every morning when I was a kid, I mean, and you look at this box. I mean, I was my mother never bought the super sugary stuff, but even just the the Cheerios. I mm, like, was a Reese's Puffs guy. Oh, oh yeah, that, that stuff was good, but I, I only got it at friends' houses because my, my mother would never buy that. But uh, all the processed food, all the seed oils, vegetable oils, it's it's all poison. We're we're just surrounded by poison, uh, but it's normalized. So a lot of people don't understand. And also, uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself when I say all the brainwashing in public school about uh, drinking milk. It's basically sugar, right? Uh, it's very, very high on the glycemic index. Our worst chocolate um, milk. The, the fucking uh, – the, the food pyramid, biggest fucking scam ever. You should eat 12 servings of carbs of bread and pasta a day. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's insane, and they're killing everybody. But uh, – yeah. It, it takes so much time to like figure this stuff out. And, you know, I, I was fat back when I lived in the U S and uh, there's just, you know, until someone presents you the information or you just slowly make your way around and figure out the truth, it's, it's, it's so hard to, to actually make progress. Right. And yeah, I, I never even considered to go like pasture raised, but, uh, I suppose I need to look into that. Is it like, how much more expensive is it versus, uh, the mass produced meats when you, when you do that?
0: It's, it's more expensive, but what you're getting, I believe, for what you're paying is way more, like it's way more valuable. And also it resets your frame of mind. So like there's something to be said about completely ignoring the fact that the animal that we're eating is tortured. And for anybody that says, oh, well, that doesn't bug me or like, oh man, like this is a, you know, like you're being sensitive. Okay. Go and watch that cow being killed or go and watch that pig. Like see them torn from their parents, stuck in a cage where they can't move, jacked up with steroids, antibiotics, whatever it is that they need to make them grow and then slaughtered. And then you eat it. I bet you it's harder for you to do it. So you choose to ignore it. And also I think it kind of, there's this fault there's I think there's a sense that like to be masculine you need to eat meat which I think there's a, there's a lot to that in saying like look the, the protein that we can get from meat is great the vitamins that we can get is awesome and it's amazing but there's a difference between eating a tortured chicken like chicken wings or eating tortured a tortured cow seeing that meat versus a pasture raised beef the colors are completely different. If I held like, for instance, a wild elk in front of you, and then let's say a farm, like a, you know, a mass produced uh, thing of beef, they look wildly different. The colors, they're darker, they're richer. It just looks like a completely different animal. And so I don't think there's anything wrong if you're like, look, I don't want to eat meat. I think that's a totally fine answer if you're doing it in that regard, I think where the issue comes in is that if you do eat meat and like, look, for me, this is a recent change. So I've gone through this. If you have the means to go and at least eat meat that you know was pasture-raised, that wasn't tortured, et cetera, I just don't know the excuse not to. I really don't. I mean, do you you feel like, for instance, do, do you feel like when you eat, let's say if we go to... I know you don't eat this, but let's say we were to go to McDonald's and get a get a burger. If I brought up to you, like, hey, this animal was, you know, tortured and, and put in and like would never saw a sunlight and was like put through all these things, would you think about that when you ate it or are you able to separate it?
1: I think that if I could afford to avoid that, I would choose to. But also I think this is a message that really gives you an impression once you see it. Did you see some film or documentary about this that influenced your thinking about like the animal's life?
0: Yeah, I did. And and that's what really changed it. So there's a few documentaries on Netflix. And then I read a few articles. and I, And look, I think your point is a good one. I get it. There's probably people listening to this podcast where, look, what you can afford right now is quick fast food or frozen pizzas or whatever it is. And it's just not, or maybe you live in an area where it's not accessible. I'm totally conscious of that for sure. But- I think my advice would be is, one, do your research and then ask yourself, how important is your health? And also, at some point, you should just have a an ethical question. And look, I'm not the shining light of this. There are times, I'm sure, where if I'm super hungry, oh, I like In-N-Out, dude. I really love In-N-Out. It's hard, bro. Or Chick-fil-A. Oh, my God. Have you had Chick-fil-A?
1: I've never had Chick-fil-A before.
0: Oh, my God. I don't know what they're doing, dude. I think they lace it with cocaine. So that thing is, del- is delicious. But this, the past few months, and I think going forward, I'm doing my best, man, to get away with it. And it changes your frame of mind, too. When you start thinking about those things, it leads you down the path. Okay, if you're only going to have pasture-raised meat, well, then you start asking yourself, do you really need the food that's cooked in canola and vegetable oil? Do you really need to be cooking in things that have a bunch of plastic? And it just leads you down this path. I think health is a journey. It's a long journey. And so I think an easy way for people to start getting into it at least is moving to pasture. There's not a lot of people I can find that would argue with me that eating animals that aren't tortured is better.
1: Unless you're a sicko. Right. (laughs) Uh, What is your eating window for the fasting, the intermittent fasting, and what do you typically eat during that time? I usually do
0: a 17-hour fast. And when I started doing that, I had dropped from 172 all the way down to 153. And I was eating whatever I wanted. So I would eat a burrito, like a surf and turf burrito with chips. I love surf and turf burritos with uh, chips and uh, guacamole every day. That I don't really know if necessarily healthy, but I dropped weight super fast. What's interesting is that since I've switch now to a mainly meat diet and more elimination of carbs. I still have carbs, but if I have carbs, it's like couscous, et cetera. I gained weight. So I went up from 153 to right now I weigh about 162, but I feel better. And so what I wonder in my mind, which I don't know, is the relation between weight gain and body composition, which I've never, I haven't done in, in years. Have you ever gotten like your body composition, percentage fat, percentage mass
1: or muscle? Uh, no, I've never done that before, but I want to do it in the next uh, couple of weeks because I, I want to do a seven to 10 day fast and uh, measure all that before and after, and maybe uh, get some tests on like hormonal, hormone levels and such, and see what the effects of the, of the fast is. So, but but I've never done that before. What's the longest fast that you've done? Seven days. Was it hard? It was surprisingly easy. It was unbelievable. I made a bet with a couple friends in Ukraine, and uh, you know, if anybody couldn't do the seven days, they they buy a nice dinner for for everybody. We started, and I was just uh, I wanted to I wanted to do only water, like not coffee, even though there's no calories. I just only water for seven days, and to make the water taste more interesting, I I just made it hot. I was, I was just drinking hot water for, for seven days straight. Honestly, I mean, and this is common to hear about this, but first two, three days, it's a little tough. You're thinking about food. After that, I didn't even want to eat food. All desire to eat, completely gone. And, uh, and I would be going to meetings. I see some friends. They're having dinner. I had zero desire to eat. And uh, maybe on the fourth day, I started to get a headache, which is rare for me. And uh, so I started to add uh, sodium uh, salts in the water. And you know what was so funny? This hot salt water that you drink after four days of not eating anything, it was the most delicious thing I ever had in my life. It was so fucking good. I loved it. It was like ramen broth, you know? It tasted so good, man. And then on the seventh day, I went to a, a Georgian restaurant sat down, ordered a soup that I like. And I'm looking at this thing and I I didn't even want it. I didn't feel hungry. So yeah, it's like two, three days of challenge. And after that, it's just a breeze. And uh, you save so much money when you don't eat anything. (laughs) Time and really save a lot of money. Yeah. Time also. And you don't even know what to do with all this additional time because you and I probably eat out a lot of meals. And, uh, and every time you go out, it's like, okay, 30 minutes to get there, 30 minutes to order, 30 minutes, an hour to eat. It's like a, it's like a two hour affair every time. It's nuts. Did you lose a lot of weight after the end of seven days? I'm trying to remember. I, I think I lost uh, five and a half kilos, like 11 pounds. But like, what I'm curious about is how much of that was water versus right. fat. Right. So that's why I want to do the, te- you know, test the body composition before and after. But after that, you know, I looked at my face and I said, wow, I'm really too skinny. You know, the the bones kind of protruding from the face a bit. But that was a big victory for me because uh, I used to be overweight and to be able to control your body and understand how to become too skinny means that I have full control over my my body for the rest of my life. Right. So, you know, when I was in, after being in Thailand for a couple of weeks and eating green curry every day and gaining some weight, I just did a few days fast and I'm back to normal. The biggest benefit from the doing this was psychological, to do this thing that, you know, so many people said, oh, it's crazy. It's impossible. You're going to hurt yourself. Uh, You know, even my family thinks I'm, thought I was crazy. So I didn't tell them when I did it. For me, it's obvious, like the human body can handle this, right? I mean, really for 10,000 years, you know, there was never a time where someone doesn't eat for seven days. It's it's ridiculous. So I had no doubt that it would be safe. I I know guys that have done like 30 day fasts. Really? For fun. Yeah. and, And just, they love it. So yeah, so you do this thing that everybody thinks you're crazy to do and, and you actually find that it's easy. And uh, the same way you feel control over your body because now you can lose weight on command, you also feel you have total control over your mind because this like big scary thing was actually just a, a little puppy that you had to, to slay and it was it was nothing. So it was really cool, man. It was really cool. I really recommend it to anyone that's curious.
0: That's amazing. I've thought about doing multi-day fast. The thing I wonder, and I guess for you, did you did you lift at all during the seven days Were you fasting? You no, no, I
1: that was before my lifting.
0: Do you think you could have? You think you could have worked? I think out so. Oh, I think so. Okay. I mean,
1: maybe, maybe less. You feel a little different when you're doing the multi-day fast because okay, the, the first three days are hard because your body is going into ketosis, assuming you're not already. And then after that, you have this strange mixture. At least in my case, of like brain fog plus some mental clarity. It's like uh, I know they're opposite things, but but you feel like you're too tired, like you didn't sleep enough last night. And you know when that happens, you feel a little strange in the head. So a little bit of that, but at the same time, you can focus nicely on things. Uh, you know, you can focus well on things that you're trying to think about. So it's it's weird not to shit for. Like I was gonna days. say, yeah. You go to that's, the that's yeah, that's weird. That's weird, and I'm, I'm peeing all the time because yeah. I'm just drinking water. And the first, I'm sure that soup just went right through. The soup was delicious. Um, it was actually so they they advise against breaking a fast with meat because oh. it's too heavy. And like so, they say like, ah, oh, start break it with some light stuff. And I, I said I don't care. So I I ordered a the, the, the meat soup, a hodgeo Georgian soup, delicious stuff, and then uh, got some uh, kinkali. I think maybe ate it. You know, like Georgian meatballs, Georgian oh. dumplings. Yeah. And, so good. Uh, well my body was fine Wow yeah I
0: have noticed that one of the benefits that I didn't think of when I started fasting was just the time you get back when you're not thinking about food when you don't need to be a pl- like be in a place with food it's weird when you start fasting you start noticing that like oh you start panicking if you haven't eaten for seven eight hours and it's all mental it's all mental The thing that helped me is whenever I would get cravings I just have coffee and then it goes away. But yeah, I think that just the time back for seven days, you must have gotten so
1: much time, which is amazing. And it's a huge accomplishment. Dude, you don't even know what to do with all this time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I look forward to doing it again. Have you experimented at all with temperatures, sauna, cryotherapy? I did cryotherapy several times. Uh, it wasn't very consistent. The only notable thing was I, I had, I, it would put me in a, like not every time, but maybe a third of the time I would leave and I'd be in an amazing mood like just so happy and uh, grateful. And I would call my mom and uh, it was like a a switch. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, never did it consistently. Saunas also never consistently. And and in fact, I'd say I do it quite rarely, but I, I know you've gotten into that a lot.
0: Yeah, I have. There's a lot of studies that have come out about it helping with testosterone and the health benefits of it. I think, especially with COVID and stuff going around, for me I just feel like it has to do something. There has to be some health benefits of your body being ramped up in temperature and you just sweating things out. But I also take supplements and you know some people still tell me to this day that if you take supplements you're just basically having expensive piss. It's crazy to think about that people say that with all these studies coming out. So I I take vitamin D, I take magnesium, I take fish oil and then I do the sauna. I just feel like for me it's this like preventative Way and like look, if I'm wrong, I spent money on supplements. It's cheap
1: insurance. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, my my grandfather, who I respect very much, uh always said, Yeah, yeah. my friends all told me I'm crazy for taking all these supplements. I spent a hundred bucks a month on this stuff and and uh, and I always figured it's just cheap insurance. But it looks like I have the last laugh because all my friends are dead. It's <laughs> <laughs> a morbid joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's my grandfather's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's absolutely a badass. He, he got me into supplements and stuff. So, so yeah, even if it, even if it helps 5%, right. But, but uh, my bare minimum now to not get COVID and I haven't gotten COVID yet is, uh, uh, zinc vitamin D and quercetin. That's like bare minimum. I'll take that. But I have a, I have these little pill bottles. They look like, um, like camera film bottles, if you remember those. Mm-hmm. And so I just have, I just fill those up with all my supplements and I, I take a shot of it, you know, once a day and that's everything. Yeah. It's so probably 20 different things.
0: Yeah. Similar for me. The only thing I think I take in addition is there's a, a good amount of research that shows that vitamin D is very helpful. You probably get a lot of a sun, but I just take that too.
1: Yeah. yeah. I take
0: 5,000 I use a day. Oh, great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, man, we got to take care of ourselves. We're 30 now. We're not 21, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm 30. You're 31. I know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> old, don't remind me. Old, old motherfucker. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 30 is when I started realizing, I don't know if it was the same for you, that I'm not invincible. Starting to, to you know, when I was 30, and especially now, I've noticed that my friends in their 30s, a lot of them have, you know, it's when the health issues starts, when the weight gains start, etc., We got to take care of ourselves. We're still,
1: you know, we're still young. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I got a herniated disc, um, managed to fix that and uh, doing squats and like, you know, weight, weight training helped a lot with that. And then this past year, my arm, you know, just from lifting, you know, 20 pounds or something. Yeah. But dude, NAD plus, you got to try it, man. I'm going to. That has probably been the most hyped up
0: thing to me that I've heard from a lot of my extremely smart friends like you. That and stem cell therapy, that's been the other one. Those two things have been widely, widely, widely uh, recommended for my friends. So I'm going to give it a chance for sure. Uh, Do you plan to try stem cell therapy? I'm thinking about it. I don't have a specific injury though that I need it for. Right. But- in, do you know, is it just for a specific injuries or is it just general on this?
1: I, I think that in most cases, they kind of inject it in a localized part of the body. I think they can also, I don't know, put it in, put it in an IV or something. Maybe I'm not sure, but I do know it's expensive as fuck. It's like, like 30, 40 grand. Uh, yeah. Would you, would you do it? Yeah. Maybe when Bitcoin's 100K, I'll give it a shot.
0: And when is, when is that going to be? Oh,
1: come on, man. I was so wrong this past year. <laughs> me too.
0: But, you know, I, I think the, the outlook that I've had, which I know is really hard because people want to check the price every day, is if you hold it for 10 years, who cares? You know? I don't know. Even people who hate Bitcoin, I haven't really heard of any kind of argument that's been presented to me where if I say, I'm holding this for 10 years, somebody can logically explain to me why it's going to I'm going to lose money. Right. Have you ever heard of count- What what here's a great question for you. What is the strongest
1: counter argument you've heard about the risks of Bitcoin? That's a great question. Well, man, uh, I think you and I have been trying to talk to the smartest people we know for years now and try to figure out how the fuck we can be wrong about this. And we've been kind of on this journey since 2017, I think, right? So I've been trying to find the reason why I'm I, I will be wrong or can be wrong and uh, Bitcoin can fail. I actually haven't looked deeper into this, but um, if, for example, all the undersea cables are cut at the same time, then that can kind of fracture Bitcoin. I um, you know there, there's like you know Blockstream has a satellite. You know they 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 are able to you know broadcast blocks to anywhere in the world with these satellites. Uh, I'm not sure how that plays out. I haven't talked to someone technical about how this would play out if that happened. But you can pretty much only permanently stop Bitcoin if you turn off every computer in the world forever or turn off the internet everywhere forever. So I think the chances of it going to zero are virtually zero. I mean, I'll always buy it if it's zero, uh, right? You know, And this thing is just growing so fast. You know, It's a trillion dollar asset in 12 years with no ceo or marketing team and if you look at the log chart over the its entire life i mean it looks like it's going up forever so what do you I, what I, I cannot yeah i have i have no good argument against it that i've come across yet and i am still looking
0: is there a time horizon where you say look you know you have somebody on the show reaches out and says hey kentaro like i want to buy a Bitcoin, but I can only hold it for a year, two years, et cetera. Like, is there a time horizon where you say, look, like"? because I mean, I think one of the things you and I agree on with Bitcoin is at least in the near future, there's going to be volatility. So every rising asset has happened. That's just the name of the game. I think I never get stressed, for instance, right now, Prices at 69 and then went down. I think right now it's at 42. For me, it doesn't matter because I'm holding long-term, but for, I think a lot of people who are just getting into the space or thinking about investments, it kind of scares them off. And I think one of the points that I say is think of how long you're willing to hold the uh, your money in Bitcoin. If you're going to hold it for two months, it's a different conversation, et cetera. What do you say to those people what, what's the time that you should expect to be holding this?
1: Ideally you hold it for four years minimum because there's never been a period in Bitcoin's history where you make less than a hundred percent I mean you always make an over hundred percent per year compound returns by holding uh, over four years. you know personally I'll tell people like listen, you know money that you don't need for two to four years. I would put it in, but four years is the most safe. I, th- I think the more important thing is to not have zero, yeah. right? Because uh, like you mentioned inflation earlier, central banks, you know why all this shit like Shiba and Doge and stuff and and uh, NFTs have, have gotten biggest because central banks have manipulated the money for so long and it's impossible to get yield. I mean, everybody is becoming poorer every day by holding cash, especially the poorest people because they only have cash. So that drives people into the most speculative shit right you know I I, I don't own any stocks uh, and I know you do um, and I and, and if I were to I would own the same stocks that you have but essentially you know people are pushed so far out the risk curve that owning those stocks is like owning cash yeah right like like you hope to just match inflation with your stocks I think that's the
0: only goal right the stocks those are my those are my oh shit has hit the fan. Those are the stocks.
1: That's your that's your checking account. That's like your cash. Correct. I think so. Uh, when when holding a few stocks is essentially the only way to maintain value, then people that want to gamble or get higher yield, they're pushed to the craziest shit, right? Including uh, all this crypto garbage tokens, which um, pains me to know you hold, but. I should have came
0: in with my Shiba hoodie. Oh my God. You have will a Shiba hoodie? One? No, but I'll get one for us. Oh my God. I'll get one for you if you wear it. <laughs> no way, dude. We'll get you that and some huge sunglasses. Dude, I have a
1: reputation, man.
0: <laughs> dude, you will get a different following if you wear a Shiba hoodie. Put on Instagram. Have a big dollar sign or have a big Shiba coin chain. Dude, you should hire me to head up your branding.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I uh, Shiba boys. You can make a band. <laughs> Um, I, I think a lot of people don't understand why I'm so against uh, cryptos and these all these tokens, dude. I really strongly believe that Bitcoin is the most important thing happening in the world, and uh, yes, it just happens to make you know people wealthy in the process, also, which the world really needs. Regular people really need that. Regular people have been fucked over for fucking decades, right? But I really feel strongly about the humanitarian mission that is Bitcoin too, not just in the sense that that uh, political activists and political dissidents can still you know sustain themselves economically by using Bitcoin, but because there's a lot of totalitarian shit going on, you know, international law is being broken and people are forced to uh, take medications now for the first time since World War II, which you don't want in their body. And uh, I think that's super evil. And I think that this world will continue to Devolve into uh, the whole world looking like China with uh, with social credit scores and uh, you know essentially movement licenses, and uh, it's the first time in history that the whole world can live under tyranny because uh, the you know technology is sufficiently advanced that every person can be tracked and controlled you know forever. So the only chance that humanity has to not live on a prison planet is for Bitcoin to succeed because. Since Bitcoin can't be printed by governments, uh, governments have to be financially responsible and not just print a bunch of money they want to spend, which means that they won't be able to afford to go on expeditionary wars or to run a police state for very long, if at all. And uh, I really believe that humanity needs this thing. And uh, I I hope for humanity's sake that people understand it uh, faster and adopt it faster. And that's really one of the reasons why I decided that this podcast must be about bitcoin because i'm very passionate about it and i believe the world really needs it now more than ever so yeah people gambling on you know dog tokens and and scamming each other with nfts you know in a sense it's funny and and all but actually either bitcoin succeeds and our children will live free or bitcoin fails and humanity is enslaved forever that's kind of how i see the world One of the criticisms I think you get, and I love a lot
0: of what you're you're saying, I think one of the things that you get criticism for is that it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, that it's Bitcoin or basically nothing. What about to all those people that come to you and say, look, while Bitcoin still can be all the things that you said... Blockchain technology can take these other forms. There can be an ecosystem where there exists more than just Bitcoin. I, I think if I had to think, and and again, while I think you and I have the a very, very similar philosophy, that's probably the biggest critique that I that I hear. And you're thinking to that, what do you say?
1: If we're still talking about Bitcoin and it's and and humanity's necessity of it to, to remain free, I would say that absolutely everything other than Bitcoin is a distraction. Everything else can be co-opted. Everything else can be, you know, properly controlled and banned by government. And even if every single government in the world banned Bitcoin tomorrow, they would not stop it. It's sufficiently decentralized. You have to shut off the internet or all computers everywhere forever to stop it. So yeah, all the other cryptos, uh, I think they are distractions and uh, they do not help move humanity forward at all. If we're talking about Bitcoin as an investment and the place that other cryptos hold. Yes, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Doge, or I mean, you know, I- in a smaller, small enough time frame, there's always assets that outperform some other asset. For sure, right? Like, okay, if you look at the last two weeks, the dollar outperformed Bitcoin. But you know, we're you know, we're not uh, gamblers or traders. We're we're investors, and I-, I think that longer term, there will be more than one crypto asset or cryptocurrency. Uh, I, I think that everything except for Bitcoin will continue to cycle through, like what's number two to number ten, right? So, you know, you look at the top ten cryptos the last decade, and they're, they're changing all the time. Uh, as an investment, Bitcoin may not, you know, the next two years, three years, five years, or something, um, there may be other assets, whether crypto-related or not, that outperform Bitcoin. But uh, the only one that I would bet on to be around in hundred years is Bitcoin. I would not hold any cryptocurrency or crypto asset. Or maybe even a a house. I mean, like is like if you if I buy a house tomorrow, what will be there in a hundred years? Can I right. give it to my grandkids? I mean, like this shit is like destroyed in fifty to hundred years for sure. Right. Yeah.
0: Plus the house is so much work. So much work. You're, you're gonna spend
1: mean? one to three percent a year on taxes and maintenance. Yeah. And then like you lose half of its value in like a you know, a decade or two.
0: Yeah. Right? I always compare Bitcoin to when I hold it against something, I hold it against real estate. I don't even hold it against gold because, come on, who's- Gold's (laughs) a fucking joke, isn't it? So I compare it to real estate. And actually, even now, I rent. I don't own my home. I pay a stupid amount for rent that I get a lot of criticism for. It gives a migraine, I'm sure, to my parents to know. But the reason I do it is because I just can't justify buying a home if there's Bitcoin.
1: Renting is just buying optionality, Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people shit on renting, but I I, I think uh, it depends on what you're trying to do. And you know, for me, actually, I, I did just buy a place, but uh, that was uh, also to execute on a strategy to not have 100 percent in Bitcoin. You know, I you know your backup plan is probably stocks, and mine is real estate in different countries. So for me, renting makes a lot of sense because I'm traveling all the time, and I I can't. Uh, I can't spend more than two weeks in any one place. I just don't like it. Uh so I'm I'm buying optionality by renting. And you know, the you have a unique position in terms of real estate because you can borrow money for so cheap in the US. And uh, you know, I, I would probably consider that in, in your position because it's just so cheap. You know, I don't know where you can borrow money for two, three percent or something, right? And I wish I could do that um because that's such a strong arbitrage, you know, comparing that two, three percent to the inflation rate, which is 20 to 30 percent. But yeah, you have to really you should like the place that you buy this thing in, too. And, and I don't know if, how married you feel to San Diego.
0: Yeah, I think there's multiple reasons. One is, you know, I move around a lot, too, and I just don't want to be held in one place. Also, I feel like when people buy a place, they invest so much money into it. You know, you need a new porch, you need to repaint. Renting, you don't have to deal with any of that. My stove breaks, call the landlord. I love that. It's so easy. And I think there's a thought that our parents and our grandparents had that it's a common saying, when you're renting, you're just throwing money out the window. No, that's not what I'm doing. I'm paying rent. So the other money that I have, I have optionality to put it into other investments that that do better. And so if I know that I'm getting a higher return than I'm going to get on the real estate, then what do I get? I get to live in a place where I don't have to be in charge of it. No upkeep, et cetera. I can move when I want and I'm getting a better return on it. No problem. And it doesn't take any
1: time. Right. A lot of people will say, but you can just rent out the place if you don't live there anymore, but then you got to deal with that. They're going to break a bunch of stuff, the tenants. Uh, and then you got to pay 50% of your income to taxes For sure. and, and insurance. Maybe they break their leg. Now they're going to sue you because you're Right, so it's uh, that's that's complicated too. I, I think I think real estate investing is super overrated, and I, I did a lot of that the last several years. But it's really not as simple as you know people make it sound. I always say I always
0: correct people. They go, "Oh, you should buy some real estate." I have real estate. It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is real estate. It's digital real estate. It's a superior form of real estate.
1: Yeah, and I love how Michael Saylor talks about this. Like, it's real estate that every single person in the world wants. Whereas you buy an apartment here in Tokyo or New York, you're limited to just the people in that city that will desire it. But with Bitcoin, every single person will sooner or later realize they want to own digital property.
0: I agree. And I think it's it's a thought process that's been reoccurring in our podcast where a general step in philosophy, I think, that every listener should take is you should just be open to questioning things. You should question, when the government says inflation is X, is it X? When the government said, here's the food pyramid, why did they make this the food pyramid? What are the advantages of of this? Where did this come from? And when you ask those questions, I feel like things that we talk about in health relation into you know, what we're talking about to diet, to Bitcoin, et cetera, it's the same kind of thing. If you just take what is given from your government, our old philosophy, et cetera, then those are the returns that you're going to get. When you start to question, these things all relate to each other. And I think especially now during the times of COVID and rapid inflation and people starting to look at health and wellness more than ever before, that it's never been more
1: important just to ask some of these questions that we're doing, for sure. Awesome, man. Well, uh, it's been an hour and a half. AJ, I want to thank you for coming on the pod for me. And I also want to say that uh, I'm really honored to be your friend. And uh, we've had a really cool journey the last several years because uh, we've kind of both grown together and uh, in in business and investing and and health now. So uh, I'm really honored to be your friend and uh, thank you for making the time for this. Dude, thank you so much. And I would say, you know, as I
0: look back and I think about the things that I think are the most amazing and and coolest about this journey is it's one thing to build a successful business to invest and to do well but it's even more amazing to have a friend go along the same path with you so
1: it's been awesome dude and and thank you for having me on All right, man thanks a lot have a good one catch you later thanks hey everyone thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Renaissance Podcast if you want to get in touch you can find me at Kentaro.com thanks again and see you next time